You are listening to Anchored in Faith, the official podcast of Humano Corpus Dignitate. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Anchored in Faith. My name is Angel. Today, I do not have Carlos with me. Instead, I have four beautiful women who are in ministry, women of faith, women who are so amazing at what they do. Um, and so I'm going to go ahead and introduce every single one of them now. I have Anne DeSantis from, oh, she has so many ministries. Um, I'll have them all introduce their ministries after. I have Anne DeSantis, Julie Bartlett, Myra Rodriguez, and Maria Spears. So Maria, let's start with you. Thank you so much. It's such a privilege and such a joy to get to spend this time with you other ladies who I have so much admiration for. And like Angel said, my name is Maria Spears. I grew up in Kentucky. I have five brothers and grew up in a Catholic home. My mom was Catholic. My dad um, was a convert to the faith. And so the faith was definitely a part of our life growing up. I went to a Catholic university. I went to Franciscan University. And uh, so faith was definitely a part of my life kind of all throughout. I, I like to say I wasn't one of those people who had this all of a sudden big conversion. It was just kind of a steady climb and, you know, you have dips along the way and <laughs> and then you get back up. And uh, what I what I do now, so both um, ministry and work, I, I actually look at my work in everything I do as, as, as mission, you know, in some capacity. I do have one part of my work that is straight ministry, and that's a band and women's ministry called His Own. It's with myself and two of my actually dearest friends, Christine uh, Simpson-Wessa and Kara Klein-Oob. And we, our goal is to really help to remind, encourage women to become the women God's created them to be, to remind them of their dignity and their worth, and that God does have a plan for their life, and it's good. And so we sing and we speak and we travel all over the world with that. And then I also, I may uh, have been a speaker and, and I um, kind of worked in the entrepreneur world for a long time in coaching industry. And so a lot of what I do now as far as work, but again, to me, it's also an aspect of ministry and mission is mindset and life coaching. Uh, and it's just, it's amazing to see um, how much we're impacted by our thoughts and by different things in life. And we had no idea of these incredible tools that the Lord has given us to be able to live from a space of freedom. And so I, I really see a lot of the work I do, even though it's not just with Catholics, I also work with people who are not Catholic or Protestant and even some who are not Christian. But to me, anytime you're working in a capacity of bringing deeper wholeness and really bringing people to, closer to their core identity, um, there's a, a space for evangelization and create space for the Holy Spirit to work. So that's what I get to do, and I love it. <laughs> that's so beautiful. Myra Rodriguez has an amazing story. She is actually in the pro-life ministry. Myra, go ahead and uh, let us know a little bit of your background, um, how you came into the faith, and um, what you do now. Right. Okay, so I'm Mexican. I was born in Mexico City, so I was born and raised Catholic. And, you know, the Virgin of Guadalupe in my heart, we say Guadalupana del Corazón, like just from the heart. So um, a lot of Mexicans who actually, you don't, they don't even have to be Catholic or Christian, you know, they still adore and praise to the Virgin of Guadalupe. It is just the patron of Mexico. So I grew up with that. My mother's name's Guadalupe, so you can imagine how that feast is at home on December, right? So um, 
as born and raised Catholic, I was always going to church, always in mass, you know, but I didn't quite understand or paid attention, obviously. And especially throughout my years in Planned Parenthood, I was far away from my church. You know, I didn't attend mass just so I wouldn't hear the priest calling people to pray outside of my work. So with that said, I worked for Planned Parenthood for 17 years. I was married and had two children who grew up in the Planned Parenthood world. And that is my biggest challenge right now when I'm pro-life, switching the brains on my kids about uh, being pro-life or pro-choice or pro-abortion. And and on my second marriage, because God blessed me with that after uh, the first marriage didn't work out and my ex-husband was deported. So um, being by myself and then losing my work, you know, God just put me in so many great paths and through a whole new life. And I'm remarried and to a very faithful man, you know, who is also pro-life. And he goes with me at every pro-life event, bless his heart, you know, standing outside of Planned Parenthood clinics or rallies or any speaking event that I have, because I do that as part of my ministry. I go around the world. Um, for example, all over Latin America, Spain, Ireland, and many other countries speaking about my story, my stand against abortion, why abortion destroys women, and why the truth behind Planned Parenthood and who really Planned Parenthood worldwide is. Beautiful. That's amazing. I think you're you're definitely one of those stories that, you know, when God closes a door, another one opens. And having that faith, and sometimes we don't see it until much later, but we realize the blessings in those, um, in the things that we lose, there's always a blessing to be found later. And so that's, um, that is absolutely amazing. Julie, let's go ahead and hear your story. Sure. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be part of this panel of inspiring women and, and to just be, you know, partaking in this great conversation. My name is Julianne Bartlett and I have a ministry called Passion of Hope. And I started it because I had married my husband at the age of 42. And I, I always tell people it was a, a battle of epic proportions for me to get married. I um, just absolutely struggled to to find a husband, to find someone who I wanted to marry, that wanted to marry me, um, to, you know, get to the altar. And um, we've been married just a little over 10 years now. And that um, we, you know, I, I feel like I see women who are struggling with the same issues that I struggled with. And I felt um, that there was a need to create a resource out there in the Catholic Church that um, I wish had existed when I was single, that to give hope to people to get married, that not only can you get married, um, but that God wants to help you get married. Um, Because I um, had received so much discouragement and to find the the hope and the, the the strength and the gumption to keep going um, and believe that God could do a miracle for me, that that I wanted to, you know, pass that on to people so that, that they could see that God could do this for them too. I love how you're trying to inspire other women to not lose hope. Um, and 
to really see that they, you know, every single one of us is a gift. And we sometimes we some of us have a different journey and we find those gifts later in life. And some of us find them early or some of us think we find them early and find out maybe it wasn't, you know, probably not the best thing. So, you know, I love that you're giving these women hope for finding the right person and not not just kind of falling for anybody, but just but finding um, the one that God is willing to give them and that God um, intends for them to have. So it's beautiful. And DeSantis, my beautiful friend, um, let's go ahead and hear your story. Oh, thank you so much. And it's an honor to be here with all of you. And, um, and so I'll start out with kind of the business side of who I am and get into some of the personal side. Uh, as, as far as what I do for a living, um, my main job is that I'm the director for a Catholic nonprofit. It's called the St. Raymond Onatus Foundation for Freedom, Family, and Faith. We were founded by a religious order in the Philadelphia area. And in 2015, when Pope Francis came to the United States, the Mercedarian friars who I work for, who I'm employed by, they decided that they wanted to do something for families. And so they came together and they started this nonprofit. Uh, and the focus is families who are in crisis. And then the initial mission over the last six years that we've been in existence, which is a lot bigger than just this mission, is to families affected by divorce and separation. So that's what my job is. And um, I myself am not divorced. <laughs> um, I am married to my husband, Angelo. We just celebrated our 32nd wedding anniversary. And we have two adult daughters that are almost 25 and 22 and I was a homeschooling mother for years, many years. And then I got involved in some other things when I was in my late 40s. And now I'm 56, going to be 57. And the first thing that I did after I finished 20 years of homeschooling was I got involved in, uh, for my age bracket, modeling and acting. Now, there's a that's a big discussion here for us tonight in terms of women and, and the expectations and everything. Because what, what I do just on a part-time basis is really just trying to earn a little extra money for the family. But you have to be very careful about what you accept in that world because there's a lot of things that are not good for us as women to portray ourselves. Now, that's just a part of what I do. Um, like I said, my main job is working for the foundation, and I absolutely love doing that. And I have a big announcement here, too, that uh, Angelica is also now our new a board member for the St. Raymond and Honest Foundation. And not only that, she's accepted the vice president's role. So I'm really excited about what's going to happen there. And and my I'm faith story. Excited. Yeah, yeah, I'm so excited. A um, little bit about my faith journey is that I was raised Catholic. I wouldn't say that I was a devouted Catholic, you know, when I was growing up, things like that. Um, I had a profound conversion, though, when I was 34 because I was diagnosed with a severe uh, health ailment uh, uh, with congestive heart failure. I almost died uh, with peripartum cardiomyopathy. And if you're worried that somebody you know or you may get this disease, it's only one in 10,000 pregnancies that get peripartum cardiomyopathy. It's kind of a fluky disease. Uh, I had no idea how I actually got it, but I received the sacrament of the sick. And a week or two later, the doctor called and said that my ventricle had shrunk down and my health was looking much, much better. That was sort of the beginning of my road to coming back to being more serious about what I was taught, you know, what I was, what, what I was raised to believe. 
And one more part of my conversion is that in 2009, when I was in my mid forties, uh, my daughter was going through a really rough time uh, to a point where it brought me down, uh, really down. And I was very depressed for a while. I was a daily mass communicant. I believed in my faith, but I found myself very much alone, even though I was doing all the right things. Um, but I think God showed me something about what it means to be something called marginalized. I never thought that I'd ever reach that point in my life, but I found myself very much alone without support other than my, my husband and my family. Um, and, and then I wrote a book called Love and Care for the Marginalized this past year. It's uh, 40 Meditations for Catholics. It's available on Amazon under Anne DeSantis or Love and Care for the Marginalized. But it's really my journey of what I discovered about myself and what I discovered about other people, even people of faith, even people who go to daily mass and who are very devoted to their faith. What I learned is that we don't understand what it means to be an active listener. And an active listener is someone who can listen to someone without judgment, without fixing them, without telling them what they should do, all that kind of thing. Um, because it took me four years, four years to get better. And I did it without medicine, even though I don't I'm not saying that if you have to take medicine, do it. But for me, I decided I didn't want to do that. And it did take me four years, but I did get out of it. Um, I found the Mercedarian Religious Order where I work now. And the fourth charism of their vows is the willingness, the willingness to give their lives for those in danger of losing their faith. Even though I went to daily mass, prayed every day, did the rosary, I was in danger of losing my faith at that time. But God got me out of it. I'm here. I'm, I'm so happy that I'm able to help people who are marginalized. And also on a pro-life note, I understand what that means because I myself do also go down to the abortion centers on a monthly basis and pray and uh, also pray for the unborn. So thank you so much for having me here. Absolutely. And um, so one thing that we wanted to do today was really talk about our faith journey. And it sounds like all of us, you know, all of us were born into the faith, but all of us have had our own struggles with staying in the faith, um, whether it was, you know, we were alone or whatever it was. I mean, one thing that happened with me was, you know, I went to, I was born and raised Catholic, very Catholic um, mom. My grandfather's very Catholic, but, um, and you know, they were the ones that helped raise me. I, I do have both parents, but yeah, both, we went to church every Sunday, went to Catholic school for 12 years, but my husband was, um, baptized Catholic, but non-practicing. And I think, you know, when you're in the throes of love, you kind of, kind of take on each other's habits. And, um, he would tell me, oh, well, it was basically, we don't have time for church, um, kind of a thing. We would always have activities and it's like, well, we'll go later. And we end up not going. And there was a, there was a time where I was not in church for years and I don't know what it was, but one day I just kind of walked in there and I just started, and it's the church that I was baptized in, went to school at, got confirmation and yeah, got married. Um, got married at, and I just walked in there and I just started crying and I, I was like, I'm home and I don't know what brought me there, but, it, but it did. Um, and so I, you know, some of it, I feel like all of us have had our own journey in some way where our faith kind of dwindled and what, 
I mean, what things, um, and you were talking about falling into depression and that kind of dwindling your faith a little bit, um, and kind of questioning, questioning God, I think in that sense, like why, in a way, why are you going through this? But, um, and Julie, was there anything that ever that ever kind of stopped you from going to church? Or, I mean, you said that you kind of eventually refound it on your own much later. Um, so, what was your story with with that? Well, I you know when we were talking a little before you know I had shared that I was raised Catholic, and when I was seventeen, I I stopped going, and then I um, after I had come home from, I I didn't go to church at all through college and um, law school because I, I didn't feel like, you know, that God could be found in the Catholic church because I hadn't learned anything at all. I was like, you know, raised in the Catholic faith. And, um, and so then when I had come back and um, I, I decided I was going to start looking in the evangelical, you know, non-denominational world because I knew people who, who were in those churches and they seemed to know more about God. Like they knew about the scriptures and they talked about God, like in terms of having a relationship with him. And, and I, I really wanted that relationship. Um, and so I, um, you know, shared then a little bit about how I came, came back um, because I researched the early fathers, the scriptures, the church writings, um, because I was the very thing that drove me away from the church was like, what is the truth about God? And um, it was this struggle as I was growing older, not getting married, <laughs> getting more older. And people would be like, you know, hey, you, you know, you might just have to accept that God has nobody for you. And I was like, I cannot accept that. God has to have an opinion on whether like, you know, like, um, like he has, he has very certain opinions, like on lots of subjects, like thou shall not kill, <laughs> thou shall not steal, <laughs> thou shall, you know, should thou marry or not? Like, what does he think about it? So I, um, you know, decided to research it. And, um, and it led me to reading um, about, you know, some things from the catechism. And I thought, hmm, there's a lot more in here <laughs> than I ever learned about. And, um, and so then I, I learned about the, the, you know, the faith, and I had no clue that that was really what the Catholic faith was. So, so all that to say that since I have been back in the Catholic church, um, there has, there have been times where I definitely have struggled with my faith, like during what I like to call prolonged singleness, um, that, um, being very angry with God over it. Um, even since I've been married, struggling with things that, um, you know, either are going on in my life or in churches I've been in. Um, so have I struggled, you know, um, with like, you know, God per se, um, or like the, the church? Yes. Um, but I've never thought, oh, I'm going to leave the church. Like, have I wanted to leave the church? Yes, because you get mad at the people. Um, but because I did such an extensive like research, um, I know that I can't leave because I know it's the truth. I, kn I know without like a doubt. Um, but I think that 
that struggle with faith because the Bible says that the only way to please God is through faith. And I think when we go through big struggles, um, even like what Anne was talking about, like um, it's that faith that gets broken down a little bit and then he builds it back up again so that we know that he alone is what he alone is who can do something for us. Like he, he's the only one who really can help us, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think something that you really touched on is the fact that we as cradle, what we would call cradle Catholics, some, sometimes the faith seems to be more cultural. Um, and we don't always know the reasons why when we're tradi- when we go through it traditionally, right? I, I sometimes, and um, we Carlos and I actually had this conversation because his wife converted to the faith, and so she's much more into the practice and um, very they they the converts seem more into it because of the fact that they had to, they made that choice and they kind of came into it later, whereas. Some of us that were kind of raised into the faith, in the faith um, lose sight of the truths of what we're supposed to be doing and the reverence and um, the beauty and and the and the honesty that is in in the Catholic faith. Um, something that just kind of happened recently, uh, Julie kind of talked about, you know, the the evangelical non-denominational Christians seeming more into their faith because they are able to spurt out every Bible verse known to me and um they they're more outward with their faith and um but i kind and i kind of realized in catholicism and i that you can't it you know those faiths kind of like hook onto you they really try to attract you and hook onto you and hold on to you um but something that i realized with catholicism is it's a faith that you need to seek yourself you have to be the one to say, I need to find this. They're not going to hook on to you. Um, so, and I think that's sometimes where we kind of lose people because they're not being hooked on to, but at the same time, they're also not willing to try to seek the truth. They just want the truth being told to them. What Have you guys ever experienced any of that? Well, it's funny that you said that, um, I'm, I myself have never experienced that, but someone said the same exact thing that you said. What he said was, this was a friend of my husband's and mine. Uh, he came back to the faith and he said that with the Catholic church, you have to work a little harder, meaning you have to pay attention more. You know, they're not going to come after you and force you to be a part of the church. You, it's an Mm -hmm. invitation, but no one's going to make you feel like you have to do this. And I think everything that you just said says exactly, exactly what this gentleman said to me, maybe about 15 years ago. I remember it exactly. It is exactly what he said. So thank you for saying it so well. Throughout my years in Planned Parenthood, yeah. you know, going to Catholic church included people, um, you know, praying outside of my work, you know, and the praise being outside. So for years, I'm like, maybe I should go to another church where I don't feel judged, you know, and it was like the easy way to silence my conscience that I was feeling bad to show up in church, knowing what I, that I worked for a company that was doing what God didn't wanted me to do, right? And, but I thought if I go to another church where they won't judge me, where they will accept me by working at this big abortion industry, you know, where they won't look at me wrong, and they want to ask people to go pray, maybe I will feel better. You know, it was just a way 
like a, a cheating way for me to cheat the faith, right? Like go where you feel comfortable and not when you're being told what if it's what the Lord wants you to do. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, you're, you're right. Some of us kind of try to take the cop out method, right? Like, I'm just not going to go, um, <laughs> because of that, Maria, I mean, you work with so many different types of women, um, in your ministry. What have you found, um, especially for those who seem to be struggling? If anyone, if any, I know that you do a lot of the self-worth coaching, but I'm, um, I'm pretty sure some of them actually, We'll talk to you about their faith journey as well. What have you found that um, women struggle with when it comes to their faith? You know, I think one of the biggest things, and it's, it's been interesting because this was something that I had to really walk through as well, is the struggle with faith, I think a lot of times comes, and I've seen this with a lot of the women I've worked with, is when we don't actually believe that God's good. So we have, you know, we that prayer is not answered, you know, and or something traumatic happens in our family or something we've been praying for for a long time, like nothing's happening or all this bad stuff happened. And, and then it's like, well, wait a second, if God's good, he could have stopped that. Or if God was good, he could have answered that prayer. If God was good. And, and I have found that, that, you know, for me personally, that was a huge walking through situation. I had a season where um, there was like five or six really traumatic things that happened in a very short amount of time. I was dating someone very seriously. We're talking engagement. We broke up. Um, my music teacher who I was close with was murdered. Um, my cousin died from a drug overdose. My Something very traumatic happened in my family. And there was literally, it was just one thing after another, after another. And I remember, and I would go and I would sit with Jesus in adoration and I would just cry. And I would just sit with him and I would cry. And I remember thinking, you know, where else would I go though? Because on the same side, it's like, even though I was like, I don't want to talk to you, Lord. <laughs> I have nothing to say to you. At the same time, I remember always coming back to, but yeah, but where else would I go? You know? And when you spend that time, I think, with Jesus in the Eucharist, you really get to the heart of, you know, um, even in the midst of all of that, where else do you go? And I think with the coaching part of it, and this is where I, it, it brought a lot of freedom for me personally, and it's been beautiful to see with uh, with my clients, is that we're not taught the integration of the body, the mind, you know, physical, spiritual, emotional, mental. We are not taught the integration of that. And I really believe that's a huge disservice. And this is going to be a little bit of a longer explanation, but I think it's important to make sense with this is that, you know, from the get-go in the Garden of Eden, you know, the serpent was tempting with, with saying, well, you know, to Eve, well, did did God really say to not eat that fruit? You know, essentially he was offering this whole, like, you can't trust God. God's not really with good. He's withholding from you, right? Well, if, if God's not good and he's withholding from you, then he's not a good father, and if he's not a good father, then you can't trust him. And if you don't know who your father is and you can't trust that he's good and you can't trust him, period, then you don't know who you are. So suddenly there's an identity crisis within that context. And I think we're seeing that a lot now in the culture. You know, there's a massive identity um, crisis going on. So you take that, okay, so that lack of hope and trust in God, because if you can't trust him, right? Well, scripture says, pray as though it had already happened. And, and so that's expressing a faith and a hope and a trust that we have a father who's good and who wants good things for us. And from a biological, neurological standpoint, 
we have something in our brains called a reticular activating system, and it's a filtering system in our brain. And so what you focus on, you literally see more that your brain filters it out. It's not a woo-woo thing. It's literally just, you know, the way that God made our brains to operate. So if I'm praying with faith and hope and trust, because I believe that I have a good father who wants good things for me, my Raz is kicking into gear because I'm looking like, yes, God's bringing good things to me. So I'm going to start seeing more good things because I'm my brain's filtering that out for me, right? Well, if I believe that God's bringing good things, I start to act different. I show up to my life completely different. And so I can hold on to hope because I know that my father is good and I'm starting to see more of his goodness because I'm, I'm kicking my brain into gear with that by his grace, you know, and, and so everything's working together for that. And so with a lot of the ladies that I'm working with, when they've had a lot of trauma, they've, they've come and they've done all the counseling and they've, you know, had, or, or maybe they're just struggling in faith. The majority of the time it goes back to, because we don't actually think we have a good father. And, and that was honestly walking through that process for me, going through so many painful things. It, I questioned a lot of my faith. I questioned a lot of like, why am I even, you know, Catholic? So like, why am I in this? But I kept, I couldn't get away from that. No matter what I struggled with this, Jesus is present in the Eucharist. And then in understanding the role that hope plays in there and understanding the role that our brains and our bodies and how we actually work in cooperation with the Lord and that, so he's given us, I tell my girls all the time that your thoughts are your God-given superpowers, <laughs> you know? And so when we operate with his grace in that space and everything is a free gift, but when we work with him with that, then, and, and especially as the women start to learn some of these tools, then suddenly they start to see, oh my gosh, God is good. Oh my goodness, look at all the ways he has shown up for me. I was just looking at all the ways that he wasn't, or I thought he wasn't, because I was looking at all these other things. And I think whenever we take our eyes off the Lord, then we lose our place. We lose our sense. We lose where we're going. And, and then we lose our identity. And so that is one of the things I've, again, from my personal experience, and also just working with a lot of women in that capacity that has shown up over and over again. Oh my gosh, you just inspired me and just hit me right in the heart. <laughs> Maria, oh my goodness. Um, you know, one thing that I do want to say is, Myra, I'm, I'm looking at you right now on the screen and we're talking and with your story, I think one of the things that I really want to emphasize is right now is the merciful God. Um, you know, your, your story, obviously, it was going to, it would take a lot of, I feel like your story may have taken a lot of, and I, obviously this is my own conjecture, a lot of self-forgiveness, right? Um, you had to kind of um, come to the realization of where you were um, and then have that conversation with God. But now God used you, used your experience, used all of what you saw, the truths that you saw, despite all the lies that were being told, um, and is now you are now the vessel of hate. This is the truth. This is what is happening. And this is, and now he's actually having you be the voice, his voice because of what you, what you know. Um, so in what, what do you think about that? And how did you kind of, how did you navigate through that conversion? Well, it wasn't easy. I can tell you that, right? It wasn't easy because for many years I made an excuse to myself that I work in a clinic that had nothing to do with abortion and I should not be feeling guilty, right? That the clinic that I was at 
was uh, not providing abortion services. And even to the point that I will tell my poor mother, not even my salary comes from that money, mom. You know, like trying to make my mother feel better about me working for that corporation. You know, so uh, when I, you know, when I lose my job and then I start with this journey, I realized that God had been trying to come to me for many, many years back. And I was not listening, you know, that I was just being being blind and, and not wanting to listen to what he would, the signals that I was getting from him. Now it has, I have to have forgive myself a lot. I'm still trying to forgive myself a lot. You know, it's like when things happen, I'm like, how did I not see that? How, how did I not hear that? Or why did I thought when I hear this from ex employee, you know, thought that it was just maybe exaggerating the story, you know, or when I heard uh, people say outside, you know, this is what they do inside. And I'm like, no, you're wrong. They're helping women. You know, like, why was I part of it? You know, like, why did I walk into that elementary school and talk to those um, sixth graders about who Planned Parenthood was and how they were welcome in there as soon as they hit 12 years old and their parents, they can't do nothing about it, you know? Like, trying to forgive myself all the help that I give that... Um, how can we call it like the that dark world right it has been the hardest you know but also forgive me trying to forgive myself from teaching my kids that that has been the worst you know like again you know i always said i didn't want an abortion for me or my daughter you know but then when i said i didn't care if other women killed their children it's like i didn't care for their children i care for mine i wouldn't hurt mine i wouldn't kill mine but if other women did, you know, so trying to forgive me for those kinds of thoughts that I had for making an excuse for that. And then knowing that God was there the entire way, you know, just patiently waiting for me. You know, it, it, it's, I mean, I can't tell you what a miracle I feel in my life that I say he never gave up on me, never gave up on me. You know, it didn't matter. It, it, it's on his time, but he waited and waited. And it was like, oh, eventually she'll come around. Eventually she'll come around. And, you know, today, do I regret being the director of the biggest abortion cleaner? So not, obviously I'm going to say no. I regret seeing what I have seen. I regret not being able to unsee that. But it is thanks to what I have seen and the God put me there that today I can speak the truth about what's behind abortion and how God really helped me see the truth, you know, and how God gave me the strength to do what I didn't think it was possible, right? Because I, I could not have done what I did without him, you know. I have a lot of stake, and most people uh, don't know this, but I was undocumented by submitting that lawsuit. I could have been deported. I had been in this country for over 25 years. I had no one in Mexico, you know, and just the thought of going back to Mexico to where you haven't even been there for 25 years since I was a kid, it was like, what am I going to do? But I knew I had to do it. And it was a risk that I was willing to take, to take, um, but with God's help, right? Because if I wasn't for him being behind me, I would not have said, yes, I'm going to submit the lawsuit. And, you know, oh, well, if I have to go back to Mexico, I have to go back to Mexico, right? So, I mean, the two years of the lawsuit helped me get um, um, healed and it helped me get a spiritual help from a priest that God put in my path a long time ago. 
you know, I many years I heard people saying like, oh, I have a priest that it's my friend and I can text him. You know, I never knew that you can do that or you could have that. You know, now I have that. I have a priest that I can, when I have really hard time, all I have to is pick up the phone and call him and he'll be there for me. And that's God to me. You know, that's God working for me. So, I mean, yeah, that's that's how I have been doing it with a lot of help of the church. That is absolutely awe-inspiring, Myra. And I just, oh, you're, every time you talk about your story, I'm always in tears because I, I can see as much as there was so much, as you went through it, like you said, and you know, I, I one thing I do want to say is you're, God, no matter what actions or what you were associated with, the thing is God knows what's in our hearts, what's our intention. Um, and so that's, I think, what he would look at more than anything. You know, I mean, you talk about the the sinful woman, the woman caught in adultery and the way Jesus lifted her up and just kind of told her, hey, yeah, you you did something that you weren't supposed to, but just just don't do it anymore. You know, and he he's the one that picked her up off the street and told her like basically said, you are forgiven. You can go. Um, and so you were able to turn around and not just turn around and stop what you were doing, but you're using, you use that experience to now be the voice um, and the voice of all these, all of these women who are going through things that, you know, I feel like if we as a society was just more supportive of some of these women and non-judgmental that they wouldn't feel the need to do what they need to do, what they feel they need to do. Um and also, I think the way our society looks at women and tells women, tells young girls especially, how they should act, how they should dress. And we, we're going to talk about this in a later episode of um, the Women's Well. Um, you know, if 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 only we change our society's view of or what the society is trying to influence our young women, especially nowadays, um, to act and to feel and to be, then I think that it would actually decrease and even eliminate the, their their quote-unquote for lack of a better word need for an abortion because then they wouldn't they would it would prevent them from acting in ways that would cause them to want to get an abortion so um and and i know and you you deal with um your ministry deals with families who are in crisis um what kind of it, it, what kind of stories did you hear as far as their faith journeys and getting through that and having, and I think having the support that the Mercedarian Friars in your ministry has provided, have you seen like their, con their own faith conversion to just kind of, as you help them go through these crises? Thank you so much. Well, first of all, uh, it's an honor to, to be a part of the mission and and really, it's something that I think is still growing. So we've been around since 2015, but the first two years of our existence, there were a lot of board meetings and a lot of talking, but we weren't really like an existing ministry until uh, 2017. So figure, you know, we're about four years old or so, and I, I became the director in January of 2018. And so we do... Um, a lot of outreach to families who are affected by divorce and separation. And we used to do these online support meetings, but we, we sort of graduated to these interactive podcasts that we do on YouTube. 
And for people who are watching and listening, just check it out sometime because if you know somebody affected by divorce and separation, Catholic specifically, uh, you go to our YouTube channel at Philly, like the city, Philly Nonatis. And, or you can just go to nonatis.org and learn about what we do. Now, do, have I seen like people who have shared stories with me personally? Uh, yes, I have, even though I'm the director and quite frankly, it's a little bit more of an administrative job than it is like, I'm not a licensed counselor. I'm not a therapist. Um, you know, I do have my master's in theology, which thank God I was able to do that, you know, and at my age, I just graduated in 2021 with that master's from St. Joseph's College of Maine. <laughs> uh, it was a beautiful experience and a lot of learning. But what I do in my job, to be quite frank, is um, it's not as much of the, 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 the counselor aspect because we're not, we don't bill ourselves as licensed uh, psychologists or counselors. Uh, but we are, what we do offer is pastoral accompaniment. So the, what I do is I give, the people will call me and they will say, I would like to talk to the priest. I want to have a conversation. I want to set up a meeting. And so I will arrange that meeting with one of our friars. Now, have I heard stories? Yes, I have. I would say on average, maybe once, a, uh, about twice a month, somebody will ask to talk to me and they want to tell me their, their stuff and they want and a Santos to hear their story. And that's, you know, I, I'm happy to hear that story, but I do make it clear that I'm not a licensed therapist. So I do offer my prayer. I offer my, um, you know, my accompaniment as much as I can do that. But my job really does consist of, um, not just that, but even all the administrative things when even like bookkeeping, even, you know, social media, uploading things on our website. So I mean, I'm, I'm doing a lot, you know, other than just the whole people aspect. Um, but our friars really are the ones that handle a lot of those calls. But to answer that question, absolutely. Have I talked to people who have uh, been converted and really have their lives have been changed? I would say one of the big things that I've seen in the foundation is a lot of people think that because we're dealing with people affected by divorce and separation, that we get a lot of younger people. But to be quite frank, a lot of the people that I have talked to and I've dealt with, our average client is usually around 60. I don't know why. I don't. I can't give any answer to that. But they're long divorced people who are still dealing with issues of things that have happened when they were like in their 30s and 40s. And maybe they're watching their grandchildren falling away from their faith. So even though I'm 50, almost 57, some of my clients are older than me. Um, now, I've gotten some younger ones, too. But right now, it doesn't mean it will change. It could change in the future. But right now, our average client is actually older than I am. So, but we hope to help more of a, you know, a rounded age there of people that are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, so, but, but it's all in God's, uh, God's hands. Well, something that, that's really interesting that you bring that up that, you know, 30, 40 years after their divorce, it oh, still yeah. affects them and they see Absolutely. the, they see the long-term effects in their families. So, you know, our, our faith journey and our, our struggles with the things that we go through in life is not just, oh, a temporary, oh, well, I'll get over it tomorrow. You know, it's a, it's a struggle. And I think, and it's going to, some of these uphill battles are going to be lifelong uphill battles because you see, you know, are the choices that we make really trickle down, um, down the generations. And I think, um, you know, and I, 
my grandfather had just recently passed, as these ladies know, he recently passed on Saturday. And we were talking about the fact that he, um, so my grandfather was an immigrant from the Philippines, survived through World War II, was orphaned at 14. Um, he, he, you know, he was, he, if you want to talk about child labor, he worked in this, in his young teen years to try to make ends meet for his family. Um, he did, he was able to do it with the help of relatives, but in the end it came down to him to try to help him and his two younger brothers. And, um, and then by the grace of God, his faith, his tenacity, his, motivation to succeed and to and not just succeed but to um you know to survive um he was able to finally you know we we talk about the american dream and why so many people immigrate to the united states for the opportunities and my grandfather was one of those he was able to bring all 10 children um, and became the grandfather of 24 grandchildren and was able to influence every single one of us. And I was saying 24 grandchildren, not one of us has ever been in a really bad addiction issue. Not one of us has ever been to jail. Um, You know, all of us, we've all had our struggles, maybe didn't do well in school, got a little bit of trouble, getting detention, whatever it was, but it was never... Um, that much of a struggle where we were really in trouble for a very long period of time. And every single one of us saw a level of success and all of every single one of us, we were talking about it as we gathered, as he was taking his last few breaths, all of us were talking about the fact that his influence really influenced our success and our motivation to succeed. So your choices, the choices that you make now really affect those that are around you. I feel like, um, Julie, you know, your struggle, um, and, you know, trying to not lose hope in, in so what, what kind of conversations were you having with God at that time? They were, you know, initially, you know, before I had come back to the, you know, Catholic church, like, do you have someone for me or, you know, would you, would you, you know, um, sentence me to a life of singleness, you know, even though it's absolutely something I don't want and I don't think I'd be able to bear it. Um, And then, you know, once um, I, I had... In my research, I had, you know, determined that the Catholic Church really was the fullness of truth and and was the church that Christ had founded before I had resolved this issue of singleness. So I I had come back to the Catholic Church and then I was still struggling this out, you know, with God. Um and so I was in my mid thirties at that point. And so I, um, you know, was putting myself out there and then I would, you know, I would date, get into a relationship and it would be hopeful. And, um, and so I was, um, you know, and then it would fall apart and I'd be so upset with God, like so angry. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was, it was trying to, um, you know, figure out, um, you know, this issue with him, because I really honestly felt like I could not accept that from him. Like, um, you know, that, um, and, and in those in-between times, I, the more I studied, the more I read, the more I had come into this understanding that, 
Um, I, I really didn't believe that he would just call people or me to be single unless it was for like the kingdom of, of heaven, a religious vocation, or even, even if I wasn't going to, I never felt called to a religious vocation, but that if it was a religious vocation, um, like maybe I was going to be a consecrated single, but I wasn't going to be a consecrated single because I didn't feel called to be that. So I was struggling with that. Did God, did God love me enough to give me something um, like, like it was, it was a faith issue between God and I, and, and I had to get to the point where I, I, because of my own issues, my own past, my own woundedness, you know, um, you know, that I grew up in, um, that I did one didn't feel, um, I deserved anything good and that I didn't feel anybody could love me and that I didn't feel God would just give me a relationship that, that, or that there was a man out there that could love me. And I had to get to a point where I could, um, um, not like try to earn it. Um, and that, you know, and I was wrestling all these out with God and, and I had to, you know, try to get to that point where I could stop battling with God over it. Did, was there ever like a change in your thought on your conversation with him? Um, maybe go f and what was maybe that change that you, um, that you kind of encountered? There, there was, it was, um, it was the, um, the, the 2010 and um, I, I was talking to somebody um, on a Catholic dating website and I saw it going down the same pattern, like the I saw the same like dynamics and I decided to cut it off. And, um, and so I felt like I had kind of stepped through, like I, I had opened a new door where God was like, yes, you finally are getting it. Like you, you aren't trying to, to prove that you're worthy. Like, um, and, and at the same time I had decided to start praying the rosary. Um, um, I'm not, I have always struggled with, um, at least back then too, with like the rosary. So I had taken up the rosary for Lent and, um, I don't really ever share this story that often, but I had taken up the rosary for Lent and I said to God, <laughs> um, and, and I kind of gotten this idea from reading, um, Immaculate. I don't know if you know her, if you, Immaculate, Illy Bagaza's books where she would like pray the rosary and never give up till God like helped her out of a problem. So I had gotten this idea, um, where I was going to do that, like for Lent, like I was going to just pray the rosary as many times a day as I could till God brought me a husband because <laughs> I was like at the end of my rope. I was like turned 42 during Lent and I was just like, I give up. I just can't strive anymore. I'm a striver. I'm, I'm highly performance based. And, um, and that comes with not feeling like you deserve anything good. You have to earn it. And, um, and, um, and so I was, praying and, and this just occurred to me the other day i was praying the rosary three to four times a day so i was hitting like at least three decades a day um and so so i said i had told god i said 
and I'm not encouraging anybody to do this. This was just where I was at that point. <laughs> I mean, I encourage you to pray the rosary, but not just give God a deadline. <laughs> um, I had said, you know, I just am going to trust that you're going to bring my husband to me by Easter. But if it's by divine mercy, that's okay. <laughs> um, and so I met, I met my husband the, the Monday after Easter. So it was right between Easter and Divine Mercy. And it was, and I, he, he did it like right in between. Um, yeah, and um, and I I honestly believe it was because I had, was praying the rosary like three to four times a day, which equaled um, 150 decades or more. Um, and I just devoted myself to that through Lent. And, um, and I had stopped striving, like I had, cut off this other relationship that I was communicating with when I saw it going down where I was going to have to try to prove myself, like my worth, like, Hey, I'm worth dating. I'm worth getting to know. And I just threw myself on the mercy of God to do it for me, which was new for me. You know, as a Catholic woman, what do you think that we need to do in order to help other people and other, especially other women? Well, I would say that there's two things. I think that, um, we would want to offer uh, connection and um, truth that, um, like with Anne, she had shared, like, you know, that that people, you know, are looking for, you know, community and connection. Like, you know, she, she was looking for people to go out to lunch with her. I think people are, you know, really hungry for that, um, you know, friendship, um, community, connection with people when, especially just in general, because of the pandemic, but even before the pandemic hit, you know, people are, their lives are busy. Um, so many people are isolating themselves, you know, just with their phones, they're being on the computer and that, you know, real person, you know, um, you know, being authentic with themselves, you know, and, and being able to share and, and, you know, getting out from behind their screens and having that, you know, authentic, you know, real person, you know, just even going out to lunch or getting a cup of coffee and that real sharing that needs to go on. And, and then when you couple that with truth, it was like what Myra had shared, um, you know, just to, you know, be truthful about whether it's, you know, like if people say, Hey, like, and, and I had had this conversation with a friend of mine a few weeks ago about like, you know, when people bring up that, you know, there are scandals in the church, you know, I don't deny that that goes on because it is true. There are scandals in the church, but that doesn't change that. It, it is actually, you know, the church that Christ founded and it doesn't change that the research that I did, you know, pointed to the, the truth of the church and the fullness of truth that can be founded, you know, therein. And so if I don't, you know, own what people point out, you know, it makes me a hypocrite. And, um, but that doesn't change why I still go. And, and then also I think being transparent with others about what our struggles are, because that's where I think you can connect with people. And that's where we meet people, not only about, you know, where they're at, but where they, I think, can connect with us. Because I'm really grateful when other people are honest about their struggles. Because I think social media presents, you know, 
people showing that their lives are perfect. And we all know that nobody gets the fairy tale. Yeah. So, you know, that's, I think, being real. I actually saw a post where it was like the picture of an apple um, looking in the mirror. And when they, it's on the side that's full and like bright. And then, you know, what we see on social media is what that per, that apple was seeing in the mirror, but on the, behind him was the bite out of the apple. Like the apple was not as whole mm. as we like to perceive. And so that is, I think, very true. I think we've got to seek to understand. I think when we have conversations with people, a lot of times we have assumptions about why people do what they do rather than actually what if we assume that they had a good reason for it because if i think you have a good reason for it then i'm actually going to take the time to listen to your what you perceive to be a good reason and as i think really seeking to understand rather than to give an answer is a first step uh, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care and so starting with that space of, okay, let me understand your heart. You obviously believe this for a reason or you're choosing to make those choices for your life for a reason. And, and maybe they're hurting you choices, right? But if I don't understand why you're making those choices for your life and why you're choosing those things, then I'm going to come at you totally wrong. And so I think really coming into to understand number one. Um, and number two, holding space for people in that um, with really from a place of love and understanding. Because if, if I think that most of us are not out there trying to do the wrong thing, you know, even women who are going and having abortions and women who are, you know, living immoral lives or men and women, right? Like even, even those who are doing what we can look at and say, this is morally wrong, most of them are not doing because they want to do something morally wrong, <laughs> right? And so I think the more that we can have some love, compassion, and truth, right? Because love cannot be dissected from truth. So at the same time, even in holding space and seeking to understand, that's the only way then we can create space to actually have those harder conversations and to speak truth. Because otherwise, speaking truth without love, um, there's been this this quote, and I forget who said it, that um, that love without truth, or truth, I'm sorry, truth without love is cruelty, but love without truth isn't love at all. So they have to go together, but, but I really believe we first have to create a space for people to feel safe enough to share their hearts and to be loved in that, with that compassion, because all, I mean, all, look at scripture, Jesus wasn't, you know, once people realized that they were doing, he wasn't like, you terrible sinner, you're going to hell. <laughs> you know, he just had, it was his love that transformed people. It was his conviction. It wasn't this, uh, you horrible person. It was an understanding of their wound because most people, most of us, I'd venture to say, we, we sin from our wounds, wounded spaces, you know? And so I think going into there, to really seeking to understand, to love them well, and to create that space so that you can actually have a conversation in truth. Um, and really, and then also praying for them, like praying for our brothers and sisters because sin blinds us. You know, a lot of times when we're in it, we don't know what we're doing. We've probably all had those situations in our life where we've been in some kind of sin or some aspect of sin that we didn't realize what it was doing to us and those around us. All of us have times in our lives. They, you might have a year that you look back and you say, oh my gosh, that was an awful year for me. 
And so for, for me, that year was 2009. And as I told you, my daughter was going through a hard time. She was nine years old. And I never, ever thought this would happen, but I fell into depression. Now, did I know God loved me? I did. I did. I mean, I went to mass every week. I went to mass every day. I prayed every day. I used to go to adoration almost every day. Um, so I was going through a real, real hard time, and I, I couldn't seem to uh, get over what I was upset about and what I was going through. Um, and the thing I think that if I had to give that the advice that you just said, I would say that the best thing that we can do for people is look out for people who are marginalized in our own lives. Now, they're not always like the homeless or somebody who's rejected by society. It could be somebody in your family. It could be somebody in your neighborhood. It could be somebody at church. It could be somebody that goes to daily mass. It could be somebody um, on a Zoom call. Who knows, you know? And I, I just think that we need to learn something called active listening and praying for people. People don't want to be fixed. Nobody wants to be fixed. Nobody wants to feel like they're being forced to go down a certain path. They would rather us gently suggest, but not uh, in a forceful way. The one thing that I learned when I went through what I went through, I had a lot of very religious friends, but none of them seemed to offer the right solution for me. It was either that they would pray for me, but they didn't seem to want to spend time with me. It was almost like they wanted me to go off, get fixed, and then come back once I was feeling better, you know, and or send me to a psychologist or something. And I did plenty of that. And that none of that really seemed to make things go away or make it perfect, you know. So I would say the best thing that we can do is just to simply be there for people. Don't give up on them. Don't give up on people that you feel like um you can't, you don't know what to say, or you don't know what to do or things like that. Cause I was the perfect example that you might say, well, maybe she doesn't know God loves her. I did know God loved me. I really did. My problem was with people, not God. <laughs> hey, if that makes any sense, it had nothing to do with God. I really knew that God loved me. I knew that, that, that God was with me. My problem was with the people. I did not have support. Okay. So I think what we can do is as Catholics is don't just try to educate them on something like theology of the body or this or that, or whatever it is, be there for them. Listen to them. Don't try to fix them. Walk with them. Okay. Be a friend to them. Cause I can't tell you how many of my really devout friends, I hate to say it. Some of them just gave up on me. And the funny thing was some of the friends that I had that were not religious, they were the ones that came and wanted to do lunch or wanted to talk to me. So that was a real like eye opener for me. So what God revealed to me was that as a Catholic, that's the kind of Catholic that I want to be. I want to be somebody who recognizes marginalized. Some people do know how much God loves them, but they have a problem with people. So that's, that's really what I would say. Well, um, I agree with Anne, you know, it's active. Yeah, active listening, like she said, you know, like really listening to what other people need, you know, especially what I usually tell people when they want my advice outside of the abortion clinic is like you, you give a message that is with hate and not love. If you tell them God's going to hate you forever, that woman certainly will never step a foot in church, will never go towards you. And she will look, she looked at me as the hero because I opened the door and I helped her through her worst moment. Now, was I helping her? No, I was harming her, but to her, I was helping and you were to harm me. 
So the message has to be delivered with love if we want them to go towards us, right? If we want people to come to us. Now, with the Catholic Church, I can tell you for many years, and I said that before in the podcast, you know, um, I was like, I'm not going to church because the priest is going to ask them to pray outside of my church. By all means, I want the priest to keep continue to do that. It's fine, you know, because eventually I went towards that because I knew that they were helping people outside of the clinic that I used to work. But, you know, people, they think that the church should not have a say, for example, on their body or their choice. I disagree with that. You know, I think the church needs to be a little more open, not in telling God's going to punish you for the rest of your life if you have an abortion, but just bring up the fact that defending life it's not only about being religious, it's just social justice to the unborn. You know, like people tend to think that defending life or when we criticize or when they feel like we're criticizing certain lifestyle, it's because we hate them. You know, no, we can love everybody. We just don't have to agree with certain things you do, you know, and, and you know, sometimes we just do it the wrong way and make people feel judged instead of making them feel like we want to guide them because we're worried about their salvation. We're worried about what, I mean, we all look forward to the end of the road and that end of the road being paradise and being heaven and being with the Lord. And if we do certain things in this world, we never get there, right? And as Christians, as Catholics, just looking out to one another, you know, it's like, for example, my brother, right? If I see my brother speeding all the time, I, we will have an accident and he will die. I don't want him to die. I'm not judging him. I just don't want you to die. You know, stop speeding, you know? So but maybe sometimes we just don't have the right way to deliver the message to people. We make them feel judged and we make them feel that they're unworthy of God's love. And then they stop coming to church. So my message will always be what I say to people when they ask me as sidewalk advocates, you know, just tell those women you can help them and be truthful. You know, don't make a promise that you won't deliver. This is like whether it's outside an abortion clinic, in a teen group, in, you know, in the divorce group that she has, where she's helping women with her ministry, which, by the way, I love that school for women and and, and when she's, Julie's helping women find their husband, you know, and they feel helpful, you know, it's like we make promises that we're going to be able to keep, you know, because I can tell you when people tell me, we'll find you a job, Maya. I knew they couldn't. I was undocumented and I'm like, you can't. So I'm not even going to ask you because I don't think you're being truthful. You know what I mean? So being truthful to what we can help people with, you know, and like Anne said, active listening. It's hard. I'm telling you, I'm. I have a hard time being an active listener with my son. <laughs> All of us, I think, have that. The gist is that we need we need a sense of community and we need a place of compassion and a place of love. And God, Jesus, he he looked at what we he what is it? God judged us, but did not condemn us. He, we're not here to condemn one another. We can look at each other and say, "Hey, you know what? Maybe that maybe that person's acting in a place that's wrong, but." All of us have to understand most of us are acting out of fear, out of, you know, out of despair if we are acting in these ways. Um, and so I think we all need to understand the, like you said, Maria, we have to come to a place of understanding of why. Um, so before we go, I want to say one last intention. What would your intentions be for the world um, that you want to pray for right now? Mm. Myra, we'll start with you. 
I think um, peace, you know, I mean, the moment we have right now, it just like you see compassion, but peace, you know, especially what's happening in other parts of the world, you know, just to be peaceful, to be loving to each other, you know, to be accepting of each other. I know we're all scared because of what's going on, but, you know, with what's happening in, in Afghanistan, you know, making people being afraid of people coming over, you know, what's happening with the pandemic, people just being afraid of being with one on each one on another, you know, just talking to each other in the street. I think we just have to be peaceful with each other, you know, and loving with each other. That's what I think. That's beautiful. Julie, what would, what's your intention right now? I, um, I've been praying um, the Divine Mercy Chaplet for the United States and for Afghanistan. That's, that's a good prayer to pray. Um, Oh, when we were at the Chicago and we all did the Divine Mercy, I was like, oh, that actually hit me hard. Mm. <laughs> um, Anne, what would you, what's your intention? Well, for the people who are watching this podcast or listening to it on audio, um, my prayers are going to be for you who are listening, that you will grow in your faith, but mostly that you just understand how much you are loved by God and, and by people like us. Um, and also my prayer is now that God enlightens me to my own mission, um, with, a, with a marginalized. And like I said, those marginalized aren't the people that immediately come to our head all the time. They're people that we know. They're not necessarily materially poor. They're people who don't have the love and the support that they deserve. So my prayer is always going to be for them. Um, and that we can learn to remember that we're all on equal ground when it comes to evangelizing, right? Nobody's really better than anybody else. And we're no better than anybody else, okay? So we're all sinners. And the people that we're ministering to are not people we need to convince or make sure that they're going to get to heaven. We got to make sure that we get there, right? And that, that, that we also follow the right ways. So my thing is that the way that we get to heaven and everybody else is that it's through the Beatitudes and the corporal and spiritual works of mercy and all of those other things, all those things to do with sexuality and theology of the body, all those things will follow. Let's first concentrate on that love, that forgiveness, and also listening to people without judgment. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you, Maria. What's your, what's your intention for the world today? Mm -hmm. Um, my intention is just for people to have a heart experience with Jesus Christ, you know, because if people would actually experience the heart experience of who he is, the world would change. So that's my prayer. Thank you. Well, thank you, ladies, for joining us. Um, we This is our Women's Well podcast series. Um, we're, we actually have a few more episodes planned and I am just, I'm so ecstatic that all four of these wonderful women said yes to my, to my request. And they are, I, I, you know, I, you can tell from tonight that they all have something beautiful to say. Um, so look for our next episode coming up on the Anchored in Faith podcast. All of the links to their ministries will be on the website at hcdtalks.com. Um, and a little bit more about every single one of them. You can read about every single one of them. Links to their, um, to how to connect to them um, and their contacts for their ministries. So thank you guys and have a wonderful day. Thank God you, bless. Angel. Thank you. Thank you.
For additional episodes, videos, blogs, and more, visit us at www.hcdtalks.com or follow us on any of our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at HCDTalks. Thank you so much for listening.